In today's episode, I spoke with Zoe Stamen about branding, marketing a TV show, building a brand community, and much more. If you don't know Zoe, she's a highly regarded business strategist with over 15 years of experience in marketing, branding, and communications. And she's currently building a strategy studio called Bodacious. So let's dive right into the episode. I want to start on the branding side, which is something that you focus a lot around. And a question I'm sure you've gotten before, but I want to maybe take a little different approach here. You've helped celebrities with branding. You've helped companies with branding. You've helped yourself with branding. You've helped all kinds of different people to brand something. But I'm curious what the key differences might be, both in strategy and in practice between like branding a company versus helping branding a famous person? Wow, they are quite fundamentally different. When it comes to branding a famous person, you are dealing with an individual who has a very clear perception of who they are or who they think they want to be. They understand themselves inside out and the idea of kind of taking who they think they are and then encapsulating that in some sort of more formal document and then suggesting that they build a personal brand in X way, it can be really uncomfortable, you know, and they can get really defensive about certain aspects of it because I can reflect back what I'm hearing and they kind of go, no, I don't see that about myself at all. So I think when it comes to, you know, branding a celebrity or a famous person, it's a lot more like therapy than it is more kind of traditional brand strategy because you've got to step very lightly. You need to make sure that you really are kind of bringing them on the journey with you. You need to make sure you're checking in with them a lot more. It's a much more of a delicate process, to be honest. And, you know, you're also thinking about how you put stuff out into the world and how they want to be perceived and how they want to do it. And they might come straight back at you and go, no, I think that's shit. And I don't think that reflects me at all. And kind of push back in that way. So I think it's much more of a hand-holding process. It's much more of a kind of a gentle, iterative process, whereas I think brand strategy can be a lot faster. There's less kind of, you know, personal stuff involved. There's less ego involved, hopefully, on on the whole. And I think that, you know, for me anyway, I think it's easier to do brand work than it is, you know, personal stuff. So along those lines, if you're, if we're talking about drilling down to helping a company with their brand Mm -hmm. strategy, it's kind of hard to quantify, I guess, what that really would look like in the end game. But What are those key metrics that maybe you typically rely on when you're putting together a brand strategy that you say, okay, we're going to try to measure against this? I think it depends on what the company needs to do. So I think in some cases, a brand strategy is about turning around an oil tanker. So you could have a really crap perception in the market. You could have some real issues with the way that your products are seen. You might be deeply uncool. You might be only appealing to a certain demographic and you want to change that and switch it up into a kind of younger demographic or something entirely different. So in that instance, the success parameters and things that you're measuring are, have we managed to change the perception? Have we moved into a new category? Do people use different words to describe us? Are we now quote unquote cool with a different demographic that potentially didn't even want to see us before? So that's kind of looking at sort of a rebrand and sort of turning things around. It could also be, for example, that you want to increase the way that people see you from a you know, kind of bog standard mom and pop shop into more of an innovation leader or a pioneer or operating on the frontiers of technology. You know, so have you managed to do that in terms of perception change? Or it could be that you want to really drill down into the core values that have been a part of the business for ages, but you've kind of lost your way and it's gone a bit awry. How do you get back to those core things? And how do you start to kind of really pummel people over the head with the fact that this is what you stand for and this is what you're all about? So I don't think there's any kind of one size fits all. It's understanding, you know, essentially what strategy is, which is what is point A, which is where you are now. What is point B, which is where you want to go? And those are going to dramatically differ depending on the brand, the business, you know, the kind of different objectives that you have. 
And then how do you move from point A to point B and making sure they're actually, you know, that is the strategy that you're undertaking. Would you say based on your experience that it would be more difficult between these two scenarios? Scenario A would be a brand comes to you that needs help and they have customers that like them, but basically nobody just knows that they exist. And so they're just trying to build kind of a brand from scratch versus scenario B where you have a brand that's kind of known, but they've gone through some kind of disaster to their brand and they have to recover it. Which of those scenarios would be like more fun or more difficult? I think the more fun one is always the turnaround, isn't it? Because it's more of a challenge and you really have to you know, overcome naysayers, you have to overcome really negative perceptions. And I think, you know, that a lot of brands have kind of got into that space. I mean, you had it with Under Armour for a while when, you know, the CEO came out and he was very pro-Trump and obviously he had to be kind of shuffled off the block and they had to try and sort of come back to this idea of being, you know, sports and liberal and new for everyone. And that was difficult. And they took a knock, you know, as a result of that. And then, you know, on the flip side, not that they needed a turnaround, but, you know, Nike with Colin Kaepernick, which then resulted in, you know, people on the right, burning their Nike sneakers in barrels in their back gardens. You know, there's always going to be cohorts of people who really hate what you stand for. I think the problem is when you go through, you know, either a massive perception shift, which is negative, where pretty much everyone feels badly about you, or whether you've got a product that kind of let people down, and then you kind of almost have to come back from an efficacy perspective and get trusted again. So I think, but those for me are always the fun ones because they're challenging and they're meaty and, you know, they're difficult. Whereas I think the previous scenario which is some people know about them, but they want to become bigger and better. That's just about finding different ways to shout from the rooftops and different ways to kind of grow what they already stand for. You're not trying to undo or unpick or reframe. I always think that those kind of reframing and unpicking jobs are the ones that actually the vast majority of people tend to avoid because they are more difficult and you just kind of don't really want to do them. But I think if you dive into that and you really embrace that, that's when you really cut your teeth as a strategist and as a professional in this space. So as a pivoting a little bit to another interesting thing that you've done, you actually worked on a TV series for a luxury fashion label. I want to talk through the story behind like, once you were approached with that and actually accepted it, how you kind of came up with the strategy, what the marketing strategy looked like for that endeavor. Well, they actually didn't approach us to do it. We approached them. And so basically said, you know, this is the kind of way that we want to think about it. And I think that you know, we were tracking, and I still am, you know, tracking the power of entertainment to do a really strong brand job. And I think you only have to look at what Netflix are doing in the sports world at the moment. So things like, you know, Drive to Survive, you know, the PGA Golf series they've been doing, and, you know, the various different kind of basketball documentaries they've done, you know, Last Dance, for example, the Redeem team, all of those are powerful entertainment properties, which have then, you know, shifted perception of a sport or made it more popular or um, added more depth to the real world characters around it. And the same is true for fashion. The same is true for kind of any business, really. If you can find a strong angle and you can turn a story into something that people can really connect with on a much more emotional level, then that's going to be so much more powerful. And yes, way more expensive and involved, but so much more powerful than an ad. And so this idea of, you know, working with a luxury label to be able to kind of turn the designer's story into something that people would actually want to tune into and a way for them to get to know, you know, who he was, for example. I think that is a really interesting, slightly left of field approach for a brand such as that. Because, yeah, in the luxury world, we see these, you know, mostly the stereotype is these awful perfume ads, like the Dior one with Johnny Depp, where he's randomly standing in a desert and there's a crocodile and nobody knows what the fuck's going on. You know, they're more kind of abstract stuff into how do you get into the grit. And actually, 
if you're thinking about, you know, a luxury label, especially where there is a founder of some kind. So, you know, if you've got someone like Gucci or the origins of Vuitton, and obviously Vuitton was all about travel and, you know, kind of looking at the world in a, in a, in a sort of much more explorative mindset. If you can find a way of tracking those brands back to their origins, then people might feel a new sense of kind of understanding or kinship with them. And that's kind of what we were aiming for. Did you have any specific metrics that you were like pushing against or was it really just the goal was to just get something set up and then kind of distribute it into a marketing strategy or a marketing ecosystem? No, I think that would have been a lost opportunity. I think the way to think about these things is it's not just about the entertainment property, but it's what the entertainment property can then spin out. So, you know, the entertainment property could spin out. What would that look like in terms of in-store experiences? and ways of people to kind of, you know, walk in store and experience the world that you'd created in the entertainment property to really make them feel like they were immersed in that narrative in some way. What about capsule collections and collaborations that actually, you know, maybe revive different aspects of that designer that were long gone in history or his childhood or his, you know, origin story in some way that you kind of brought back and that kind of had new meaning for people. So it wasn't just a kind of summer collection, but it really meant something and it was embedded in story. You know, what about the catwalk shows, for example? What does that look like? Are you now basing it in this world that you've created in the entertainment complex and you're doing it in a way that feels more like theater, you know, than a normal kind of runway show? So I think that there are lots of different ways for you to sort of pull apart and, you know, create tangents off of that and to just focus on that one entertainment property and shoving it on a, you know, a Netflix or something like that, as I said, would have been too small and too narrow. And I think there's so much more that you can do with that. I think that's a powerful principle across all of marketing where we create these things like a blog post or a video or whatever. And then we just push it out and that's it, as opposed to yeah. trying to get the maximum leverage out of it. You talk often about community as well as an mm -hmm. important thing, building a fandom. I'm, I'd love to pick your brain about how brands should think differently compared to how they usually think, like the usual things that they do to build community. What's the flip side of this where they're thinking differently about community building and actually succeeding in it? I think it's a fundamental mind shift. I think, you know, brands and also ad agencies, we have thought in such a long, for such a long time in a kind of conveyor belt, you know, we are essentially sausage factories where, you know, you shove in a brief at the top, we squeeze it into a mold that is recognizable. So we've got, you know, matching luggage and assets and we do stuff on Instagram and then we repurpose it and we shove it on Facebook and we might make a tea ad, TV ad, there might be an outdoor poster, you know, and we work on it for six months, we put it out for two weeks and then we do the whole process all over again. And we are so used to just kind of broadcasting and pushing stuff at people and we're good at it, you know, so it's very difficult to actually ask a brand or an agency to change because that is the thing that, you know, you're kind of Olympic level sport at. Whereas I think when you're thinking about building a fandom in a community, it's a completely different model. It's a completely different way of being with people and thinking about relationship building. And so, you know, when it comes to broadcast, which is kind of pushing stuff out and, you know, if you respond in the comments, great, that's nice. We'll chuck it into our sentiment analysis and call it a success. But with community building, it is continuous reciprocal communication. And if you've got continuous reciprocal communication, who's managing that, you know, from a brand perspective or an agency perspective? Right now, we're not set up for that skill-wise. When you are thinking about reciprocal communication, what kind of content and ideas and activations are you pushing into that community to keep it running and to give it rhythm? And again, we've never done that before. We're not set up to be able to do that. And then when you're thinking of real reciprocity, it's about a two-way exchange. So what if a lot of the people in your community are feeding back saying, we don't like what you're doing with this product or service, and we would like to see you operate in that you know, direction instead. Do you take that on board? Do you do something with it? Do you then think about collaborative product development or co-created services or something along those lines? Or 
a totally revamped, you know, evolution of what loyalty looks like, which are what, you know, things like Nike Swoosh and Starbucks Odyssey and Adidas Alts are looking at the moment. And I don't think that we have the skill sets or the working rhythms or the incentives, client side or agency side, to be able to take that on right now, even though I think it's absolutely critical that we develop them as soon as we can. I think that you've hinted at some of these, but what would be some characteristics that would differentiate, let's say, an, a target audience from actual fans for a company? I think a target audience is the classic thing of a demographic persona, which we've all done in agency land. We, we, we've got Deborah. She's a mother of three. She's busy. She works part time as an accountant and she does her food shop twice a week and spends on average $65. And you're just like, great what the fuck do I do with that? You know, there is nothing remotely insightful or useful in that at all. All I know is that I'm just going to buy a demographic target on TV or buy a banner ads or something like that and, you know, or programmatic and shove it out there. And so when it comes to target audiences, we don't really know anything about them. You know, they are targets for our passive communications. So we are creating communications. We then buy their eyeballs and we shove stuff in their general direction and hope that they might pay attention to it. When it comes to creating fans or kind of community cohorts or people who just want to be part of a more engaged customer base, we're talking about people who want to spend time and energy engaging with us. And if they're going to do that, why would they do that? You know, how are we rewarding them? How are we incentivizing them? How are we making them feel heard and making them feel special? How are we building experiences that are just for them? And again, you know, that's thinking about loyalty and kind of bringing that back into the equation. You know, I think for so many years, through the teachings of people like Byron Sharp, he's basically said, loyalty is a complete waste of time and energy. Don't put any thinking in or money into it and just leave it by the wayside because it doesn't matter. I fundamentally disagree with that. You know, I think that loyalty is having a resurgence for a myriad of different reasons, but we need to reimagine what it is. It's not just about getting people to increase their basket value once a month by three quid, you know, and buying two bottles of shampoo versus one. It's about, you know, how do you engage them in the product and service a little bit more? And that can be different levels depending on, you know, how engaged they want to be. Or, you know, how do we allow them to co-create with our IP, which we might become a bit more open with? And that's especially relevant in the world of kind of sports and entertainment and makeup, for example, which I think is fascinating that lots of brands are exploring that space. And so I think, you know, it's not less thinking about a target audience and it's more thinking about what are their motivations? What are their needs? How can we meet those needs? How can we augment? the passions that they might have and add more value to them. And I think that is something that we haven't done. As I said, it's reciprocity, but it's adding value. It's mutual value exchange. And we've never thought about that because we haven't had to. And again, we just like to vomit stuff all over people as opposed to really thinking about what they might want and need. Is there a community that comes to mind for you that you're a part of or that you see is doing a really good job of all of the things that you've just said and building loyalty and actually giving value to them? Is there anything that comes to mind and maybe why they are a good community? I think there are a couple. I think what Nike are doing with Dots Wish is a really good, massive first step in that direction. You know, opening up virtual designs, allowing people to play around with the designs, the creation of virtual goods. And now obviously the partnerships that they're brokering with the likes of Epic and also EA Games as well to make sure that those virtual goods have real value, real kind of utility. They can be worn hopefully in the future in EA sports games like Madden. You know, going through Airforia, for example, in Fortnite Unreal Editor, that is the ability to kind of then earn a badge in Dot .swoosh, which will go against your customer passport, which then may open up experiences to you later on down the line that others can't access. So that idea of basically saying the more you contribute to our community, the more loyal you are to the brand, the more time you spend with us, we're going to reward you in the best possible way. And you're going to get cool shit as a result of it because you're special to us. 
Lego has been doing this for years and years. You know, I'd done some work with Lego in the past and I was fascinated to find out, you know, that they've actually got a head of fandom who's got a PhD in fandom. I didn't even know that was a thing. And it's amazing. And, you know, they've been cultivating AFOLs for decades and AFOL stands for adult fan of Lego. And they are actually responsible, the AFOL target at the moment for the vast majority of growth that's happening, especially across North America and Europe in Lego. And they are building these incredible, you know, sets of things, for example, like Batmobiles, for example, or the Home Alone house. And they're doing that for the AFOLs. They're also opening up platforms like Lego World Builder, which I keep banging on about because I love it so much, where they're saying to people, if you've got ideas for universes, for Lego and characters and storylines that we could turn into games franchises or movies or actual physical Lego sets, tell us, you know, and come up with these ideas. And if we like them and if we develop them, you get an equity stake. And so rather than kind of saying we know best, they're saying you guys play with Lego every single day. You love the brand as much as we do. Give us ideas. Let's do this together. And I think that is a really powerful shift in dynamic. And I think we're going to start to see that from more and more brands. Last little bit here, I want to I pivot to future focus. If you're looking forward to the tools, the trends, the tactics in marketing that excite you right now, could be Web3, AI, whatever it may be, just curious to know what you think is useful going forward in terms of what's trendy now. I think the main thing is that we have become so cynical about any trends, about any new technology, that we spend more time reveling and shitting on stuff than we do in kind of exploring it and embracing it with a more optimistic lens. And so I tend to do that with all technology. So I'm excited about what, you know, artificial intelligence can deliver in terms of becoming a creative sparring partner, you know, for creative directors, as opposed to it's not going to eliminate them, it's going to augment them in really interesting ways. I think this idea of, you know, being able to summarize white papers, which is what I'm doing at the moment, you know, using ChatGPT is fascinating. And I think, you know, things like being able to access, if you're a designer, a repository of kind of all the visual information in the world and to be able to concept, you know, in a click of a button in, you know, half a second is just fantastic. And so, you know, a lot of people are seeing it as kind of doom and gloom and, oh my God, it's the end of the ad industry and look what AI can create now. It's just derivative shit. Therefore, I don't have to be threatened by it. It's like, why is everything combative? You know, why can't it be seen as a tool that can accelerate us, augment us, as I've mentioned? So that stuff I find really exciting. I'm also, you know, I've been a massive advocate of things like Web3, you know, wallets, NFTs, that kind of stuff since the very beginning. A lot of people will say, you know, NFTs are dead. The metaverse is dead. AI is just a hype bubble. None of that's true. You know, we are looking at the classic Gartner hype cycle, which is we get really excited about something for all of about five minutes. Then we go into the trough of disillusionment for a while, but that's when the real building takes place. And then when we start to actually kind of rise again, we see the real utility in these different things. And they're all interlinked. You know, AI, for example, is going to require NFTs and blockchain to prove provenance, you know, and the realness of, you know, content and ideas and voices and opinions. And when it comes to things like, you know, NFTs and Web3 and wallets, that's going to be the new cookies. You know, Apple has basically shut down third party cookies for everyone because of the privacy blocks that they put on things. We need new ways to understand what people are interested in and what they're collecting and what kind of person they are. And, you know, connecting Web3 wallets is going to be one of the big ways to do that, which is why Shopify are investing so heavily in this space. Salesforce, as of yesterday, have released a huge new you know, platform and program for this as well. And again, it's only going to get bigger. So I'm a massive, you know, embracer and optimist when it comes to all of these new technologies. And I will always try and find use cases or ways that I can see them, you know, working or becoming core utilities for us moving forward. I think we are in the business of culture and the business of change. 
And it's remiss of us to bury our heads in the sand and to kind of not look in these new directions. It's not to say that we basically say we're going to forget everything we've learned in the last kind of 50 years about advertising, but you take what works and then you progress it and so on. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up that, that maybe didn't come up today? I think the main thing that I would love to leave people with is keep an open mind. Get excited again, because that's one of the things that we've all been struggling with is that we are very gloomy and we like to embrace our inner Victor Meldrew. And if you're British, you'll understand that reference. And, you know, or Eeyore, there you go. It's another kind of similar person. You know, we like to be grumpy. We like to shit on things and it's easier and it's lazier to do that. I think if we can find our excitement again and our enthusiasm and our embedded curiosity, it will pay dividends. And I think we've just got to keep an open mind on all of this stuff.